Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 971 with John Kunkel. Our success uh, out there was due to an incredible team. We were able to hire a uh, great culture with the company. And, and really, you know, I, I tell everybody, you know, I'm sure I'm a nice guy, but our, our additional restaurants out there and our growth was due to our performance, right? Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode brought to you by Pop Menu. Are you looking to grow your restaurant in 2023? Are you and your team focusing on driving more revenue or connecting with diners more? Maybe you want to increase sales without physically expanding your brick and mortar. If this is all true, then you are looking for Pop Menu. Pop Menu technology for restaurants that are ready to grow for a limited time my listeners can get 100 off their first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable go now to get your 100 off your first month and learn more about pop menus entire collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. Profit, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, CEO of 50 Eggs, John Conkle, my man, John, are you feeling unstoppable today? I, I am. I'm on my second cup of coffee. I'm ready to go. Oh, man. Good for you. Uh, and I'm so excited for today's conversation. This is not the first time we've connected. It's the first time we've connected in person, which I'm really excited about. You were episode 200. All right. And 50. Going way back, I think back to 2016. We, we, we've both been at this a while. Yeah, yeah. And it was such a great conversation. And I literally said in our first interview, back when I was trying to keep all the interviews under an hour, I wish we had like two hours because there's just so much we could have gone into. Now we do have a look like maybe we won't go quite to two hours today, but we have much more time. I want to dive deep. I want to get granular. I want to get specific. And uh, if you want to listen to episode 250, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 250. You can listen to the first interview, kind of catch John's story. So John got started back in like 1986. Uh, he came up working with um, uh, the, the bagel. Einstein. Uh, why can't I think of it? Yeah, that's it. Why, I, I, so my, that was my last job before I opened my Einstein's. my own first restaurant. Yeah, yeah Einstein's. Yeah. Um, so you came up. You worked for some local smaller mom and pop places, but you like you you came up. You got the experience, um, and you scaled two locations, one to four. Uh, well, which one are we talking about? Are talking we about the, the bakery? bakery? Yeah, yeah. So the, the the bakery we we opened a, a couple of satellite locations in that and that one first one, and um, probably. 
could have should have kept going with that yeah. but uh you know really you know found a, a whole nother gear and a spark with with lime fresh yes. mexican grill so. which you sold in 2012 right. to ruby tuesdays for 24 million dollars i don't did you take a break or did you just hit the ground running for that no break? i think everybody <laughs> still teases me to this day i literally came to work the next morning at seven o'clock in the morning and That's just didn't wild, even man. M- m- miss a beat you know i think i had been running on e for so long from a financial standpoint that you know one that that helped pay back a lot of debt at, at that point as you can imagine that that helped kind of all of a sudden kind of fuel up all these fun creative ideas i had i could actually do right yeah. and, and a lot of time as an entrepreneur you're out trying to bring those ideas to life and try to find funding and and you know bankers that tell you no and don't really you know want to pay attention to our industry or kind of figure out how to do that and you know and in the last five years there's a lot of new options that have come into play for for young restaurant tours but for me that was that was a game changer right i that that really um you know very uh i I always say a little bit more balls and brains when i opened my first restaurant you know 50 eggs was created knowing that I was going to do a multi-concept restaurant company, even though I had no money and I didn't have all those ideas ironed out, but I just knew it somehow. So, so was the plan always yeah. to like grow and scale a uh, lime fresh Mex or is it lime fresh Mexican grill um, from one to 11 in cell? Was that the goal? Is- yeah, I think scale has always been in my mind. I think, you know, I, I got the opportunity for the, you know, previous probably 15 years. Um, you know, I started when I was 15 years old and, and, you know, worked to almost 30 before I opened that, you know, I got to see all these things. I, I got to work for independents. I got to work for big companies. And I think, you know, I've always dreamt big and, yeah. and um, you know, could see the difference between uh, individual restaurateurs that kind of got caught up in one to three units and dividing their time. And then folks that can put systems in place, trust others, build great teams and be able to scale things. Um, I think the exiting piece was something as a student in the industry, I watched other great folks do and, and how they did it and still learning kind of best practices and how private equity thinks or what your future buyer is and, and kind of how to do that. I think, again, nothing's changed for me in that I enjoy that incubation stage. You know, you know, a lot of people will compare a a restaurant creator to a high stakes gambler, right? You, you most of the time, you you know, in my case, I, I tend to use my own chips at the poker table, which is you know kind of a dumb idea that I haven't figured my way out of yet. But you know, you push all your chips in the middle of the table and you kind of come up with some idea, and you know, if if your customer kind of proves it as something that's going to work, and the team comes together, and all these thousand pieces that make a restaurant uh, work and profitable and productive then you know then you do a second one and then you see if a third one works and then will this work in another state or another country so there's legs. all these different yeah and layers, starting yeah. like with the end in mind like will this have like like knowing from day one like are we building something that can travel right well i think and that's where maybe i approach things a little differently i i approach things from a, as a concept creator from kind of first what do i get excited about what am i passionate about what what's inspired me as i've traveled and then I really kind of put my business hat on and say, okay, what's happening in the industry? Um, what's underrepresented within um, the different segments? You know, are they lacking Israeli or Italian or Turkish or, or whatever the cuisine is? Holes in the market. And then how do my 
ideas of interest and passion kind of line up with what's what's a business opportunity. And usually that's kind of where we find things. Yeah, really, the the, the crazy matrix that goes on in your head, right? Yeah, I love that. And I'm just realizing I'm kicking myself. I never gave you the chance to share your success quarter mantra. It's a ritual here at Restaurant Stop. But we kind of just dove right into it. But before we go any further, man, let's get that motivational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Well, so mine is obviously uh, Theodore Roosevelt, which is the man in the arena. Um, It's been on the wall or ceiling or or, or something of every office, every bedroom I've I've had since I was a kid. I you had put to, this stuff on your walls as a child. You know, so it was hanging in. The, so my my father, I have unusual background. My father was uh, in the SEAL team, and my mom was a school teacher. So uh, in in my father's office, you know, I had this you know this quote that my mom had done, and kind of this brass you know thing of the man in the arena. And I had to memorize something. I think it was in like second or eighth grade and had to do this oratory, stand up and do this this whole speech. And for whatever reason, I just latched onto that. I just thought that was such a cool thing. And, and I had to memorize it. It was one of the first things I can actually remember. And um, anyway, so I, I fell in love with the thing. And, and it's always just kind of uh, been one of those special quotes for me, whether it was in my dad's office or just of the true nature of what it meant and and of course at that age you don't really know what it means uh you got to go through years of business and life to kind of figure it out and um you know it rings true for us and i think now more than ever in our business you know the the ones that are out there doing and taking the risk and and again i've i've had failures i've had successes along the way and truly unless you're out there and continue to try and risk and 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 continue to throw your hat in the ring um, you know, you, you just can't find that level of success. Um, so, you know, we, we've had some wins, we've had some losses, but we keep trying. Yeah, man. And you're, you're definitely a man of consistency because you, that was your quote when we had you on six years ago. And I mean, you've been stuck with that, like you said, as far as when you were a kid. So, yeah, you know, no, consistency I, I, is half the battle. I am definitely history. consistent. I, yeah. To a fault, probably. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, what, what I would like to talk about, where I'd like to pick up our conversation from last time, uh, you sold uh lime fresh mexican for 24 million um what do we need to go what, like what if we have something maybe we're at five locations and we still know that there's room for more and we're and we're flying and we have momentum we're listening to this right now and we think maybe we we can like sell this you know what what stages what what precautions do you have for us like what what's that what's that look like what's your best practice look like yeah, I mean, bit of a bit of a long answer, but I think it it starts and and why I have no idea, but I think this helped me quite a bit is when when you have that that hit restaurant right lines out the door. At that point, you, you've taken the risk, you've proven the concept, and all the people that said no, and everybody else that sees potential on kind of riding on your coattails at that point shows up, and they said, "Hey, I want a franchise, I want a license, I want to invest with you." I, you know, all, everyone becomes all, your friend. All every everybody that said no all of a sudden <laughs> d- just shows up and like, yeah. "Hey, I know, I know, I said no before, but now it's yes." <laughs> and you know, I think just really being on a you know, it, as exciting as that is, because, you know, more than likely you've kind of, you know, clawed to get where you are. You've worked nine zillion hours. You're still working nine zillion hours. You haven't quite figured it out. I think just take a breath. Right. And and I think what we did at that point is we had a 100 offers to franchise off of that one tiny wow. location. And, you know, how do you not take the deal? Well, like how- and, and, and let me tell you, I mean, at that time, um, I had taken every dime that I had make out of, out of the bakery. I had just gotten out of debt. I had 
put a second mortgage on my house. I had run up my credit cards. I had borrowed money from my best friend that I ended up cooking with. I mean, anything and everything I had done wrong financially to try to get it open. Um, at that point, I basically just took everything I made back and dumped it into Lime. Yeah. And so I was back in debt again. Uh, I didn't have money to open a second location. And that would have been, that, that was the hardest decision because, you know, I had a baby on the way. I just got married. All, all these things that, you know, you, you really wanted to take kind of the, the dangling carrot, the, the thing that got you out of jail uh, financially. And instead, I, I kind of just knew on a gut level that I had something special that, that was going to work, could work. And instead, I said, okay, I'm going to figure out a way to do another corporate store. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out some sort of hybrid where I have control of the brand. I maintain consistency. I knew from working for other companies and individuals that there was a lot of system and procedure I needed to iron out before I was to, to, to roll these things out. And so it was just, you know, as, as well as one works, it, it's not the same when you open a second location. And it, and then it, you, it gets even harder when you get a three and four and five. And so I knew that there was this process as I've gotten, the, I guess, the privilege and the curse of doing for other people for years previously of how to grow and, and how to be smart about growth. And not to say that I haven't screwed that up since, but I think, you know, just taking a pause at that point when, when everything's going well, because, you know, this too shall pass. Just take a breath. Let's see how it goes. Let, let's, let's iron out some systems. Can you be financially consistent month to month? Can you show a financial model that people can invest in, let alone invest your own, you know, additional money in? Um, and so I, I think that pause will, will help everybody. Where you're at one to three units. And then the, the second part is, and, and this I learned from a, a young age of seeing independent restaurant tours that I work for, was can you remove yourself from the operation? Do you mm-hmm. have to be there every day? And if, if the answer is you have to be there every day or you're running from location number one or location number two, and then maybe your, your wife or you are running to location number three, you, you're, you're not there yet, right? You, you, when you can truly learn to hire and hold teams accountable when there is models and systems for them to 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 follow whether that's scheduling tools or uh, inventory tools or something that allow the business to operate when you're not there and you're going out and truly growing the business and i think you know it's been a, a long growth period for me because all along the way you know again i'm i'm learning from other entrepreneurs outside of the restaurant industry in the restaurant industry i had wonderful people that were willing to open their door and, and phone calls to me. You know, Danny Meyer was amazing to take the time to sit down and have breakfast with me. How and, wild is that? that well, I'm mm-hmm. a nutball. I just call him up. I'm like, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm this guy. You're from South Florida. Would you mind having breakfast with me? And he goes, sure. And I'm like, really? You know, so I think that's also a testament to Danny in that. hundred percent. Like, genuine. He, or not genuine. Gener- generous he is. Incredibly know? generous. And genuine, too. <laughs> you know, and I, I think I was, you know, either arrogant or foolish enough to just go do that but yeah. i mean it, you know i, hey, I i've can, gained so much from it i still use to this day probably a nauseum one of the things he told me best i was opening a, a restaurant we had called kong river house which got a james beard nomination down here is something i was really proud of i had spent time in southeast asia we talked about that in the first episode a little yeah, bit, it was, yeah it was a killer restaurant and, and you know good good story of what to do and what not to do we'll, we'll talk about in a second but i think when i went to new york i was starting to look around at what was going on in that category of asian cuisine and, um, you know, I had called Danny after we had, had breakfast and I just said, you know, hey, what should I be looking at? And it, it was the best quote. In the world. He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you somewhere and I, I want I want you to take a look at it. Now, it's it's not anything that you would do or I would do, 
but you better pay attention because customers are paying attention to mm. it. And you know, and I, I think I remember that in some context always in that, you know, pay attention to the customer. It, it, it's not where you might want to eat. It's not how you might design a concept. But you better pay attention to what people are responding to. Yeah. And at the time, it was a concept, as we all know, called Mission Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they had a keg of beer and red solo cups at the front door and plastic menu boards. Are and they it, still going to this day? Uh, I, they, they might be in San Francisco. I don't think they are in New York. But, okay. you know, I think, you know, it was interesting just to take touch points from that. And to this day, I think as I have the privilege to travel globally now and I get to visit all these other restaurants and, and look at how other companies operate – I kind of always have that lens on the business of, you know, just try to take away one or two things, whether, yeah. whether it, it's something you would do or not do. Look at what people are responding to. And and that has helped influence every concept that we have, even existing ones like Yardbird we're sitting in today. It's been around 11 years. Every month, every year, every two years, whatever it is, I mean, we're always changing and we're tweaking, not just menu design cocktails wine offerings music playlist mm-hmm. you name it because markets don't say the same markets don't say the same yeah and but you know it's very easy to just kind of go well this is who we are this is what i like and i'm not changing and and that's the opposite of hospitality and customer service mm-hmm. for me yeah i love that and i mean i think that time too um like you know 2000, this is 2012, it was a weird time where like the world was culturally just, I feel like, exploding. The iPhone was in the hands of people at this point for six years. We're getting perspective from all over the world through our phone. Right. We're, we're wanting to try things like we might be in the middle of the country, but we can see what's happening in LA, in New York City, in, in Chicago, in, Change the in game, Miami. Yeah. So we're like, oh, we can do that too. And like, I think it was, it was a time of like juxtaposition where like you didn't want to be like everybody else. Right. Like people were, their palates were expanding so fast. They wanted to try different things and they're looking for a food adventure well listen i think you know food network cooking channel and the iphone changed uh, the the global perspective on eating right you could be in the middle of you know the u.s or 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 saudi arabia and you get this viewpoint on food i mean i remember watching a a show on the cooking channel that got me so fascinated with vietnamese cooking that i mean i ended up going there and spending time just because it 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 sparks us And, and listen movies and tv i think you know, the arts in general have done that for a long time, but I think, you know, Anthony Bourdain inspired, you know, legions of people to go out and try new things and travel. Were you in Vietnam or were you in Thailand? I, I both, actually. Okay. I spent three and a half years in Asia and, oh, and just, it when just was that? dove in um, from 18 years old till 21. Okay. So yeah, before you yeah. really dove deep into the restaurant industry. Well, so I had started at 15 and um, I, you know, again, an offshoot here, but at some point, 17, 16, I had gotten into martial arts and and saw way too many Bruce Lee movies, I think. And so I ended up going to Southeast Asia to study. And lo and behold, where do I end up working in the middle of Asia? In a bar. Ooh, yeah, yeah. So. But you make up a really good point, or you bring up a good point. Like, nothing against schools, uh, like culinary schools or hospitality programs. Nothing is as valuable as getting out there and experiencing the industry Life, yeah. all over Man. the place and getting that perspective. And if you are good, at this work in the restaurant industry, you have a ticket to any place in the world. You can get there and get a job. Listen, that was one of the neatest things. I it, Truly, I think until I was in my mid to late 20s, I didn't really think I was going to do this as, as, as a career, as, as a livelihood. This was just something I did and I had a great time with yeah. because it's what I knew and I could go anywhere in the world and I could do this. So literally in the, in the middle of Taiwan – I'm working in a little Bushiban pub and, you know, I work, you know, I, I knew I could always get a job cooking or bartending.
bartending or doing doing something in the industry globally. Yeah. And, you know, I had done everything from fast food to fine dining and could kind of morph into anything. And so it was an amazing tool for a young person to make money and have a good time. I think what changed for me is I just pay attention to everything. And I all of a sudden realized I knew more than I thought I knew at some point because I really listened to chefs and and to wine directors and bartenders and i just really was interested and then you know success meets interest and all of a sudden you figure out there is something there and so that that kind of sparked for me unexpectedly yeah so the big thing the i think the original question was when you're scaling if, if you want to sell a brand what do we need to know what are the important things i think the big takeaways i got were don't make the, the business dependent on you and also at certain stages take a time to pause because as you're scaling, your business model changes and evolves. And you need to pause and build that house before you move into it. You need to build the new systems. You need to build the new infrastructure. So where, when you were at 11 locations, um, was that a moment of pause for you? Or had you built it to that point where it can catch fire and go to like 20 or 30? No, I think when we, when we got to five, we had really caught fire. And I, I put systems in place. And, and, and by the way, I think everybody does this. So everywhere I went, uh, you know, previously I had kept my manager training manuals. I had kept every bit of shred. So a lot of that I kind of repurposed, reskinned. And so by store number two, I had cooking manuals. I had recipes. I had food costing. I had labor models. I, w- I was I was putting in a full blown POS and inventory system, and doing hot schedules on store number two. Far spending more than I needed to in some people's mind, but I wanted to put those systems in early. So by the time we got to five, we had the model down, I had the build out down, I had this this you know system down that was generating a bottom line return that started to make sense. And I knew at that point I had a couple options, right? We could continue to kind of piecemeal and you know, borrow from Peter to pay Paul to, to, as I was trying to expand these things, leverage, you know, tenant improvement dollars from landlords, take on single store investment franchise here and there, which is a whole nother conversation because that can be a little bit dangerous in the beginning. Um, but, you know, out of the blue, we started to kind of get courted by larger companies that were looking to add fast casual into their portfolio are looking for something in the category. I chose Fast Casual Mexican because of what was happening with Baja Fresh and Chipotle on, on other areas, but nothing had hit Florida yet. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew that was going on in the industry, and we just ended up at the right time in the right place and being a really strong player in a market that had no competition. So if it was such a great concept, if you weren't over the restaurant industry, you know, like mm-hmm. if you weren't, like clearly you weren't, you sold it, and like the next day you were working on the next project. Why, why did you sell it? Why not hang on to it? Yeah, I, I mean, I really was very, you know, and this is this is something not many people kind of understand or know. Even operating that many stores, I, I was so stretched financially that I had every store, I had to leverage every dime and personal guarantees to get into the next space. You know, even at that point where you've got six or seven working models, banks don't want to talk to you, right? You're still in the restaurant business. You still don't. You, you, there's not a huge coffer of funds somewhere. You, you, you're not in a business that's really fundable, and particularly at that time, right? Now it's a little bit different with early stage funding from private equity and angel investors. They they see the potential and the multiples of these things, but at that time, it was you know unless you're dealing with a couple high net worth individuals that just wanted to invest in you, 
there really wasn't funding. So the only funding I had available was really to be able to leverage everything I had. So, you know, I was, you know, pulling mortgages from house, running up credit cards, leveraging every bit of profit. So at that same time, I'm, I'm trying to grow my infrastructure. I'm maintaining an office. You know, all these things just kind of keep rattling down your, your profits. And so I got to a point where there's a moment in time where you have something, right? You've proven it out. You've systematized it. it, it it's profitable. But now you know that if you don't hit the gas on some sort of expansion, that someone else is going to take over the space. Mm. And so then you're really kind of left with, well, how do I do that? I'm either going to give up a large amount of control and I'm going to have a private equity partner. I'm going to have guys. How am I going to feel about that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I I knew that I didn't want to do that. I I didn't I didn't want to go from 100 percent equity down to 10 and working for a bunch of private equity guys that told me to put hot dogs on the menu at midnight because they thought they knew. And what are you going to do? They own majority at that's this right point. The, the, well, the, the, you're miserable yeah. is it, the short answer yeah. and and going from being able to work for yourself and create things and have that independence and and th- that's a hard change so long story short is uh you know really funny conversation of of you know i, I got contacted by sandy bell who you know was the founder of ruby tuesdays and um, just said, hey, I'd like to meet with you. And, you know, I, I really was very ignorant. I didn't know who Sandy was. I, I, did, I, I didn't really think. It's a big industry. Yeah, I, I just I, I was very ignorant when it came to that. And he said, well, I'm going to fly in. So Sandy flies in on the Ruby's jet. And he and the president of Ruby Tuesday, Kim Grant, kind of came to my office. And, you know, he was, he was running a little late. And I'm like, I, I got to pick up my kids from school. Like, I don't, I don't really have time to meet with him. He's kind of looking at me like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> and so I think... And in quite an ignorant way, my um, uh, uneagerness to sit down and do a deal, my uh, you know, I was I was less than enamored. Yeah. Uh, kind of helped there move a, things yeah. along. Yeah. Well, there, I was just going to say there is a balance to be met with. Like, if and there's some truth to this, that if you don't, if you don't value your time, no one else will. Yeah. So, like, if you start being super selective about who you give your time to, it's only going to make you more valuable, right? Yeah. Well, when it came to my kids, that was like, you know, I'm picking up my kids from school. Good luck. Yeah. Right? That's so, I don't know. But then you have Danny Meyer who's going to take a call from anybody. So. Well, no, listen, <laughs> well, I, and, you know, as do I, but it, yeah. it's a tough balance in our yeah. industry, as you yeah. know. But, um, you know, long story short is Sandy ended up calling me, you know, a week or two later, and he just said uh, the, the words that, you never say to me, which is you're never going to be able to do this on your own Ooh. and you're going to need somebody like me to grow it. And I literally, I remember yelling at the guy on the phone going, listen, dude, if I had a dime for every person that told me I couldn't do it, you know, I, I wouldn't even be talking to you right now. <laughs> so I, I said, what so, changed, so, so good, good luck. Well, it, it was two and a half years later of whittling down, and I didn't sell to them at first. I ended up doing a licensing deal where I was the franchisor to a billion-dollar public company. And I, I did it very strategically where I knew that I had a moment in time because with a company that big and a company this small – very quickly to be the tail wagging the dog, mm-hmm. right? Hey, we're going to we're gonna put hamburgers on the menu, and there's not really much you can say about it. And that happens with somebody as big as, you know, a, a Taco Bell or a, a McDonald's. When you've when you got, you know, 800 franchises with one person, they're going to go, hey, we're, we're not putting that on the menu, right? So I knew I had this moment in time to get out a couple of stores, and then my pinking the brain plan was I was going to bring in another private equity company and get funded now that I have this 100-store deal, I'm going to keep majority interest. I, I had this whole crazy plan. And what ended up happening is 
very quickly as they began to roll out, I, I, I realized they were going to screw it up. And, oh. and, um, and, and then it became a little bit more of a rush to get a deal done. And it just so happened that, you know, Ruby's didn't want to have a private equity partner. They wanted to own the brand. And then it became a very long negotiation over what that would look like. Um, and fortunately, we had great cash flow with the existing units. Um, they saw the potential. They believed in the potential. And I still think to this day, you know, Sandy just, I mean, listen, with, without a doubt, he changed my life. He's an amazing entrepreneur. We, we had a great connection. Um, as we began to open those stores together, and and I can't help but think that he just did did me a solid there. I mean, he just didn't have to do that, and I think you know whether it was seeing potential in what me was or the brand specifically that he did that was the solid part. Listen, I I think you know he had the decision to um, suggest to the board and to present the, the idea to purchase, and he was on his way out, mm-hmm. and he just didn't have to. Right, yeah. it didn't affect him financially one way or the other. I don't know that it was going to truly affect the direction of Ruby Tuesdays. And, uh, you know, it was just something he didn't have to do. I think, you know, he was just a good guy that believed in the concept, believed in me, and, and um, you know, could have easily just walked away and looked at it from a very different angle. But he And he's done that, by the way, for pretty much every company he's been involved in. He's just a very uh, – he's a brilliant – restaurant guy brilliant creative and and just does by does right by a lot of young entrepreneurs and you know it was a was you know like danny he was a great mentor for me a great uh example of kind of doing the right thing and um being creative and forging ahead you know like me he started from one ruby tuesday's location slinging burgers and beer built it into you know a, a massive company and has done that over and over again with so many different companies i mean you know he came in and you know to meatball shop and kind of funded those guys and yeah. about a half a dozen other concepts so just you know past guests on the show by the way yeah the meatball shop yeah my, michael and those guys are yeah. great guys yeah. yep um so I think now is a good time to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be back to talk about what happened after the sale. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Are you looking to grow your restaurants in 2023? Are you and your team focusing on driving more revenue? Or maybe you're interested in connecting more with your diners. Perhaps you want to increase your sales without physically expanding your brick and mortar. If any of these things sound familiar, then maybe you're looking for Pop Menu. Pop Menu is the restaurant technology designed to make growing your restaurant easy. With Pop Menu, you can attract more guests to your website that's designed to easily collect their contact info and data so you can see what your guests love and why they love to dine with you. With Pop Menu, you can stay top of mind and build authentic relationships with guests by using modern technology that drives new and repeat business. And with Pop Menu, Make all your systems work better together. Improve your margins and conquer the chaos of your restaurant's digital presence. Pop Menu, technology for restaurants that are ready to grow. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rates at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month and to learn more about Pop Menu's entire collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. We're back. And um, now I want to talk about 50 eggs and how you got to where you are today, uh, what you did with this $24 million and like, and how that helped kind of like, like launch you 
into where you are now. But um, paint the big picture. What, what is 50 Eggs today? What does it consist of? So 50 Eggs Hospitality Today is, is, is a multi-concept company. We're, we, I'd like to describe us as an incubator. We, mm-hmm. we concept and create a restaurant idea. And, you know, in the old days, that was me, me, and me. And then it turned into an amazing collaboration with some of the best designers in the world and some of the best chefs and uh, amazing wine directors and mixologists. And so whatever I've kind of brainstormed on turns into something far better than I ever dreamt it could be now. And so true value and, and, and collaboration with the right partners and, and, and helping bring things to life. But I think, you know, before I even sold to Ruby's and I did that licensing part of the deal, I had started on on the original Yardbird, which we're sitting in today. So I actually had this lease secured for a burger concept I had designed. And I realized after I got tied up in historic permitting, because this is an old Henry Flagler building. Was this tacos, burgers, and whiskey? Uh, no, oh, okay. so that that was that that was the old line space that came okay. in there. That oh, was another sorry. little tangent I went to off on. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I've had a lot of little uh, you know what I call the shiny pennies. It's like oh hey let's go do this. Yeah. Um, and uh, good good learning lesson as we've grown over the years is focus focus focus. Don't you know creativity can be a, a derailment at no. times. I, th- I feel like I'm derailing you. Sorry. No, 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 no. But like real quick before you get into those details, like yeah. what what concepts does Fifty Eggs own today? Sure. To, to so today we have a Yardbird, which is coming up on its ninth location. Uh, we just opened Chicago. Denver's coming up. We have a London location, New York. So we've got discontinued growth for that. Um, I had actually sold half of that company to a family office out of London a couple years ago. And so we're, we're growing that with a partner okay. uh, to help kind of fund that growth. Uh, we have Chica, uh, which is kind of elevated Mexican and Peruvian and the best of an Argentinian steakhouse, kind of Latin uh, at, at its best with a little entertainment component that operates in Las Vegas, uh, a beautiful flagship here in Miami. And at so the, two locations? And Aspen. Oh, three locations. Yeah, so we're at three locations. Um, longest incubation I've ever had in a concept is a Japanese concept called Wakuda uh, with Chef Tatsuya Wakuda, who's arguably one of the best chefs in the world. That just opened uh, last year. One in Singapore and one in Las Vegas. Okay. And London and New York are coming up as well as the Middle East for that. So that's exciting. That is um, kind of uh, Nobu or Zoom on steroids with one of the top chefs in the world that has an omakase in the restaurant, has a main restaurant, really, really cool thing, and, but a very long creative process for that oh, I bet. with a lot of cool people that were attached. Um, we have Spring Chicken, which is operating at three locations and has about five more coming, which is a fun, fast casual that kind of started as an offshoot of Yardbird, which which has kind of become its own fun, uh, scalable, fast casual restaurant. And how many locations? Uh, we have three currently. Three. Sorry, I think you already said that. I apologize. Uh, and then we operate a couple of things for our partners at uh, Las Vegas Sands. We took over uh, two uh, pool restaurants for them, and we concepted a spree, a spree's and Capri, Capri and Spritz, excuse me, which is uh, just kind of a fun Amalfi Coast poolside concept that services like a thousand chairs at the Venetian Palazzo pool. Uh, we took on the corporate office for our partners in Summerlin, which is like a big Google headquarters that Rockwell designed and has uh, lunch for 500 people a day. So some offshoot projects that we don't normally do that we, when we're asked by our partners or, or a strategic kind of investor, we'll, we'll do some kind of management things and oversee culinary and some things like that. But our, our focus really for growth are, are those four concepts, Spring Chicken, Chica, Wakuda, and Yardbird. And we've got some other fun things, as as always, in the pipeline, but are kind of waiting to uh, make sure we kind of have the right teams and focus. One of the things that's happened for us 
uh, post-pandemic and you know, began pre was we really started to isolate our operations, marketing, and culinary per concept. Shared infrastructure works pretty well when you're small and you have a, you know four or five stores. When you kind of get up towards 20, it, it, it needs to be kind of highly focused where all you're worrying about is a Yardbird menu or Yardbird mixology, and you're not jumping from Yardbird and then, hey, I'm going to go do cocktails at Chica, and then I'm going to go back to it. So we, we really put a lot of time and energy into uh, focus for our teams these days and really having everybody own uh, a certain concept. Okay. So I want to make sure I heard that last part with the, the post-pandemic you mm-hmm. isolated. So you, you went from having a, a centralized office that managed everything, and then you from there you said, we're going to take these bits and – Bring those to each location? Um, n- not so much. So we, we, we still have a centralized office. I think what we've done in the past is you would have operations, uh, marketing, everything that kind of oversaw all the different concepts, right? So if you're if you're VP of marketing, you're going to be doing a little bit of Chica today, a little bit of Yardbird tomorrow, and, and you're over everything. Same yep. with operations, same with our culinary teams. And what happens is not only does everybody get stretched, but you kind of lose a lack of focus. And if you're really just diving in and you're thinking about nothing but Yardbird, it, it's hard to kind of switch your mindset creatively to start thinking about a Latin concept or elevated Japanese or fast casual versus full service and, you know, that type of thing. Got it. So we still have kind of a small infrastructure, our chief operating officer, kind of our, our chief marketing officer, kind of a small C-level, if you will, that oversees kind of the downstream of each of those. And they're siloed off with kind of their VP of operations, their own marketing, their own culinary. And so basically you just kind of have these kind of brand managers or, you know, and, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is focus for sure. And, and I would recommend this to any multi-concept restaurant. Uh, folks so you know there's a lot of chefs that hey i've got a japanese place but i really wanted to go do a latin place and that's fine if you're under five stores but as they grow you know there's you need to have somebody has to focus on each of those whether it's operations and maybe culinary spreads throughout but there's got to be a focus the other piece of that is one of the things we've learned early on from other restaurant folks that have spun off concepts is it has to be investable from an outside person, whether it's private equity or high net worth individual or strategic, which means if if you remove myself and my team, who's running it, right? And and so if, if anybody looks at that from the outside in with the complexity of the restaurant industry and go, does this mean if your chef leaves, I have to get in there and do yeah. that, right? That's the panic moment. And so you really have to build teams that kind of travel with the concept. Got it. So, so I think that's I, how. I yeah. think I understand now. So you have your overarching uh, like chief uh, marketing officer, mm-hmm. chief uh, us or COO, right. then underneath in each concept you have the the VP, which is like the the direct like the direct uh, what's the word I'm looking for lead or the direct yeah. uh, what's the word operator uh, direct yeah, yeah, that's yeah like yeah. so like you have your see uh, your chiefs and then your presidents underneath and each concept has their own president but they report to that's what I was trying to say before the the chief that's right got it um, okay cool thank you for getting into that so you paint you painted the big picture going back to 2012. Um, this is now you like you you have well I'm assuming you paid off a lot of your debt that was probably the first thing you did. yeah no no that, that, that was a great feeling <laughs> yeah. I, I, I got out of debt so yeah. that was good so now you're liquid you have no debt you're liquid yeah how much did you have to work with after like you got right cash wise yeah. oh gosh so uh, you know I think I I I did a lot of things wrong in the sense that I was debt free I didn't want to I couldn't still take on debt believe it or not even with the success of that sale. 
I still could not get loans from a bank. Really? Even yeah. even with like your own assets behind and, it? Well, so as assets is different. When you're going to personally guarantee something with assets or, or, or your, your personal guarantee, that's different. But at the end of the day, you're basically leveraging your own net worth. So the idea of growth, uh, of what every other company does in the world, is, is they're trying to get um, some non-recourse loan that just funds the business, right? And And – the problem with restaurant funding early stage is you are leveraging your house or personal assets of some sort. So if shit goes south, you, you've, you've got some problems, yeah. right? And so the idea as you grow is you, you kind of want to get out of the personal guarantees on the lease. You want to get out of the, the personal lines of credit. You want to start to kind of pull back and just try to get the business to stand on its own. And that's hard to do in the restaurant business. You really have to get to a certain scale where you, you've shown a true track record. And again, the number of those stores depends on the volume. It depends on the history, yeah. uh, the consistency of that P and L. There's a lot of yeah, a lot, a lot of you know. But that's also part of the problem. There's there's you know young restaurateurs. It, there's a problem with clarity and consistency of of EBITDA, right? Yeah. And and for your average underwriter at a bank, they don't know the restaurant yeah. business. What is EBITDA yeah. for people who, who so are... So basically, what you have left over yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, putting it in small terms, it's, you know, you, you want to have, after everything is paid and done, what do you have left over? What is the business generating? Yeah. And I think at that point, that that is your um, your ability to pay down debt, pay off loans. If somebody's going to give you money, how much money do you have in free cash flow to pay me back? Yeah, and how much have you had that consistently? Not yeah. one or two months. How mm-hmm. you know have you had that for a year? What's have you the had true that for value? Two years? Right. Yeah. And so you know, there's two ways to look at that. I think one is uh, you know when we go to sell something, you know, there's a multiple attached to that. So you make a million dollars a year in profit. If you're fast casual, you can get a higher multiple because it's easier to scale and, and less to build out. So let's say you can get maybe 10 times, 11 times if, if you're really knocking it out of the park. And if you're on something more full service, more culinary driven, maybe you're eight times. But you know, you're know you somewhere between six and 12, call it, which is a big swing. But it depends on the concept, the scalability. It depends on a lot of things. So that's on the sales side. On the banking side, they purely look at you know the cash generated, what assets are in the building, and again, there's not really a lot of you know tangible assets in a restaurant. There's a whole bunch of restaurant equipment yeah. worth pennies on the dollar. There's the infrastructure that yeah. goes back to the landlord, right? Mm-hmm. So when you when you try to go get finance, it, it's very very difficult. Mm-hmm. Now again, that's changed into some other vehicles out there today, which we can talk about. But I think you know when I was still 11 years ago, when I'm kind of trying to grow. Yardbird, which was a, a far more expensive build out than my fast casual restaurants, it was very difficult. So once again, I'm pushing all those chips back in the middle of the table. So I go take you know some of the money off off of the proceeds. I kind of push that in the middle of the table, and I'm I'm growing Yardbird. I'm I'm building Kong River House, where we're doing some of these new concepts. Wait, when did you sell um, Lime Fresh? 2012, but like was it towards the end of the year? Oh gosh, I couldn't tell. I you. guess what yeah. I'm really curious about: how much time? From selling yard or sorry lime fresh to opening the doors of Yardbird. Oh, um, Yardbird was already under construction before it sold. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I was I was so you, forging yeah, ahead based yeah. on the dream was going to happen. <laughs> okay. So I wasn't even slowing down waiting for the check to clear. Got it. Got yeah, it. Yeah. So that makes sense. Which would have why it would have made it difficult for you to get the funding because you hadn't gotten liquid yet. You weren't completely one hundred. Wait, and again, I truly, uh, you know. If, if the money's in the bank and you're debt-free, I mean, you're still back to kind of leveraging. So yeah, I mean, yeah. you get a line of credit based on what you have, and but you're still 
putting but, your own money in. But at least you had your own money at this point. Yeah, which yeah. is a huge change. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that was that was a nice thing. I mean, it was like you know, are, can, can we can we have takeout tonight? And then all of a sudden, life changed. So, so you know. I guess the biggest thing I'm curious about after scaling two successful concepts and selling one of them and I know, getting all that experience as a restaurateur and kind of like getting your second life, you know, starting to start from scratch with your own cash and all this new knowledge and this massive network of people that you have behind you to support you. Did you do anything different? Did you take a different approach? Did you did you do you think you approach that in a, from a different angle than you would have if you didn't have that experience? Um, I, I definitely had scale more in mind uh, th- more than ever after I sold that. So I, I I immediately sought to like how many yardbirds can I open, and if I if I do the uh, Thai place, can I open more than one? So I was definitely thinking like whatever I'm going to do, I want I want to try. But my plan was very different and that I wanted to do kind of a different rollout. Rolling out fast casual, you can do multiples per city. Yeah. With these chef-driven restaurants, you know, chain was a dirty word. You, you, you didn't want to have multiples. And so then it was picking kind of these gateway cities where that's how the second location of Yardbird happened in Las Vegas. And, and that was an opportunity to scale the brand, having my partners fund it while I still own the brand, um, and be able to get a second location yeah. in another major city. And get I'm happy you're, you're talking about this because I was curious about that. And, you know, I never, honestly, it's kind of embarrassing to admit this. I've always been a huge fan of the centrific circle scale. Like you open one here and then you go down the street two miles, you open another one and then you go, you know, maybe four miles out you, and then you open another one and then you go in the other direction four miles and you open another one. Yeah. And then before long you have like 20 locations in like a 100 mile like radius. I, I, have, right? some, I have some very strong thoughts on that. Well, but you just said something. I was like, I never yeah. made that connection that the concepts that do this well are usually quick service or fast casual. Right. And I was like, that, like you're right. I don't think that you can have so many uh, fine or uh, even casual, like leaning towards fine, that close to each other. Well, I think it depends on w- what your ultimate goal is, yeah. and, and so I, I always, you know, there's a great restaurant tour here in Miami Beach, uh, Miles that owns Prime One Twelve and Prime Italian and all these restaurants. And you know, Miles, you know, and I've talked, and he really didn't have it. He had, God knows, a, a zillion opportunities to grow out of state, but Miles has really kind of had exactly what he said. He has all of his restaurants within a five block radius yeah and you know probably makes more money than anybody but i think p terry's that did this and have you are you familiar with that concept which one p terry's in austin texas Mm -mm. they have like 20 locations in austin in austin before they ever went anywhere else and guess where they went next where san marco which was just like the next city south got it and then after that it was san antonio you know so but again fast casual or even then they're quick service they're like a in and out type concept um so i think that i'd never thought of but they own the market, you right. know, so they had a brand recognition. So, well, so the, the, what I, I said, you know, I, I back in the beginning of doing this, I was very passionate on not doing multiples in a city. I think I've learned a lot since then, and I've seen it done both ways. I think when I look at, um, you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to build something and sell, ultimately, it's it's you have to check a couple of boxes. One is, you know, the ultimate net value of, of the company. And, you know, you grow to 10 locations in a surrounding area or a, a specific state, you're still going to have a value of cash flow. But then you still have this question with your investors or your buyers, can it work elsewhere? So if you check a box there, whether it's one state or two states where you've expanded outside of your, your backyard, because that's the default to a lot of people. Hey, this is a great concept, but will it work in Austin? Will it work in New York? Will it work elsewhere? So the, the more you kind of de-risk that, or, or you, you answer those questions for somebody, I think those are all 
um, good things. Yeah. If your ultimate goal is to sell, if it's cash flow, um, it, it's not as important. But I, you know, I think it's not as as true as it was at that time. I think again, back to Danny and Randy with Shake Shack. They took a very different approach to scaling a fast casual brand there where they, you know, first of all, they went to the Middle East almost first right outside of New York, right, which kind of de-risked the brand expansion. Alishai kind of helped them prove out the concept at the time and kind of work out some of the bugs. And then they came back and started doing the U.S. and and other other markets. And now they kind of have this secondary third, fourth rollout where they can populate multiple locations per city. But their goal was to build these flagships in these gateway cities, really build a global recognized brand, keeping a high integrity where it was a chef-driven, fast casual. And so I think that's just a different mindset. But I took a lot from what they did and how we should be expanding Yardbird. I think time. there's a lot of variables that play in here. hundred percent. Like if you're a, like, like Danny has resources, right? Like he, he can be in multiple different places at once. He has the resources to go and be in, in travel. If you're somebody who's starting to starting small, and you don't have those resources yet. You can't think about spreading yourself out laterally. Right. So like, and that, the other variable, which I didn't consider is if your goal, what's your end game? That's another variable. Like, are you trying to see if this thing has legs to scale? And do you have the resources to do that? Well, then go test it now. Why, why wait until, like, why build something up locally and then using those resources then to go other places? Am I, are you picking up what I'm putting I, in? I, I totally am. Um, and, and you're not wrong. I mean, well, I don't I, know what's right. No, no, no. You're, I, I, th- <laughs> I think there, there is no right or wrong answer here. I think there's no set way to do it, I think is what I've learned. The biggest lesson I've learned on this podcast is that the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. And it all depends. It depends depends. on what is, what is in your toolbox. Yeah. And we all have different toolboxes and you get to leverage the biggest tools in your box. Then as a lifestyle thing, to be honest with you, I mean, I always enjoyed to travel. I was, it was a goal set and I was fascinated to open internationally and in other States. That was like a, I want to go prove it to myself that I can do that. But there's also you're living on an airplane and you're doing a lot of travel. Do and you want to do that? Do you want to do yeah. that? Yeah. So so for me, I did. And, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed that. I enjoy that to this day. But, you know, a lot of people – and again, I go back to Miles. You know, he has an amazing lifestyle, right? He's walking to restaurant to restaurant every night. And, you know, he's he's got a great life. He makes a lot of money. He's got great successful concepts for 20 years. And, you know – it's just what do you want? It, 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 but there is no right or wrong way to do it. It yeah. really is a lot of variables. Yeah. Um, so back to the way you did it. You said I want to make sure that uh, if I open one here, I want to show investors that this thing does have legs. So I'm going to go to the uh, gateway market, like you called it, and see if it works there too. Well, for Yardbird, I knew just because we had we had really come out with a lot of wonderful accolades and James Beard nominations yeah. and best well, restaurant two years all these in right best new restaurant it, right out of the gate. Yeah, we we got a lot of recognition and i believed at that time that doing a second yard bird in fort lauderdale or in the immediate market would just lessen the brand from a culinary standpoint yeah. um you know particularly coming off of lime i wanted to be very careful not to be the guy who does chain restaurants so i wanted to kind of embrace the space that we were in and and just give it the the thought that now these were incredibly expensive to build. As you said, I didn't have the resources or the infrastructure to go just plop it down out of state. It was a big company behind me. I was still, you know, we contracted with our infrastructure back down after Lyme. So it was kind of me and a little SWAT team. And the opportunity with Las Vegas came around. And at the time, Las Vegas was kind of going through this resurgence of uh, 
you know, kind of the celebrity chef kind of restaurants where you never saw the celebrity chef to they really wanted to have some great culinary yeah. and they were revamping. What, what they were doing with celebrity chefs then is what they're doing with ghost kitchens now. That is right. somebody <laughs> with right. influence. They say, let's make a brand around. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and so it was an opportunity for me to go build kind of the store of my dreams with a big budget. Yeah. Um, have. Uh, money to operate, money to open, prove ourselves out in another market, um, and be able to have a lot of eyeballs and a lot of traffic go through that store to be able to then hope launch it internationally. Now, the downside or the risk to that was it's Las Vegas. Mm. Is is that the right thing to do for a chef-driven brand? Does that make you look good? And so we, we kind of went back and forth on it. And at the end of the day, you know, I rolled the dice and said, yeah, I think this is going to be a good thing. And Thankfully, we were right on that. And, you know, this little restaurant that was supposed to do $8 million, which was thought to be really busy, so we'll do $22 million this year and moves about 1,500 people a day and is one of the most highly reviewed successful restaurants in Las Vegas nine years later. And that led to almost nine other restaurants in the market. And wow. and it, it really, you know, our, our success uh, out there was due to an incredible team we were able to hire. Uh, great culture with the company and and really you know I, I tell everybody you know I'm sure I'm a nice guy but our our additional restaurants out there and our growth was due to our performance. So right? you you opened nine other concepts in Las Vegas after Yardbird, not the same concept, correct? Different, different concepts. Different concepts yeah. So is there a Chica, a, a, a Wakuda? All of them. Yeah, yeah. they're they're spring all there. Chicken. Yeah, awesome. a couple of spring chickens, the, the Chica, Wakuda, all those things are out there and and more to come. I mean, it's an amazing market if you have the right partners. Uh, one of the best hiring hospitality markets in the country. Um, real true hospitality professionals, well trained, that have come out of great restaurant systems and hotels. Um, you know, there's an outside view of Las Vegas that's very different than what it is to operate and do business there. And it, it truly is a wonderful it's place. It's probably to do a business. market of its own. It's such a unique market. It is. There's no place on earth like it. Like <laughs> yeah. no, I, I I wouldn't want to live there for any period of time. Although there are some wonderful areas, but I you know I'm I'm an ocean baby. I can't get further away from that. But it's been a great thing for our company. It's been a great thing for our culture, for our teams. You know, we've hired some amazing people. You know, you know our our lead operator that we hired in Las Vegas has become kind of one of my most trusted right-hand people. This guy named Greg Thomas has been with us forever. He's amazing. So wait, what's his title? Greg Thomas. He is our VP of uh, sales and operations. He basically is uh, just a rock star. He, he, came on board with us to open that store and years later he is uh, helping kind of shape and grow the company so i'm always paying attention to the names that are mentioned yeah you greg's know. awesome he, he, he's a rock star interviews. Yeah. yeah he's he's a good interview he's got uh. a crazy background he was a homicide detective <laughs> really? in, in new york before he started in the restaurant business so he's his own podcast oh, interesting <laughs> that is super yeah. interesting but you're starting to get into something that i'm really interesting really interested about and honestly like after almost a thousand episodes and lots of self-reflection, mm. self-awareness. I'm like, should I open a restaurant? Like, am I the kind of person that would be successful? If I why why a would you want to torture yourself? Exactly. <laughs> like, do I, this is still something I'm passionate. Like I truly am passionate about the people in this industry and, and learning about the industry. And just like, it's such a, it's such a complex industry, right? And there's it never, a, you never stop learning. Uh, I love that part of it, but I recognize today that if I'm ever going to open a restaurant, it's going to be because of the people I surround myself with. Uh, and that's the only way I'll be successful. Boy, well. oh boy, is that a true statement? Yeah, I and mean, that's the only way I'll be willing. If I have my own cash, and if I have my own network of people that I can go do it with and pro- provide opportunity for other people. Um, well, you- so I'll, I'll say just two quick things. I think I think one again that 
having your own cash, there, there's other ways to do it. I think if you have know-how and, and how you strike that deal, I think there's ways to remain in control of your destiny and, and maybe share the risk, which I've kind of learned the hard way. And I, I think, too, I've learned you know, my evolution since we've talked the first time and, and quite frankly, since I've started uh, with this first restaurant is – truly understanding the value of culture and people yes and and you know when you start as an entrepreneur with your first restaurant your second restaurant your third restaurant it is really just get out of my way i'm going to get this done yes. right and you will just get you know literally you, you, you will it into be like, you will it into be <laughs> yeah. like everybody's telling you no everybody is is against you in your mind and in reality and and you really just have to just kind of keep your head down keep plugging away keep pushing and and you have to switch your mindset in order to kind of transfer into a real company that people want to come to work for and stay and grow and develop. And that is trusting people, allowing them to make mistakes, and, and really finding kind of where everybody's strengths lie and putting together teams, right? You know, sports team, right? Everybody has a different strength, but you got to put them together. Yes. And I think, you know, we recognize more than ever, and certainly the pandemic taught our entire industry how important culture and team was. But I think, you know, how we recruit has even changed. Like, we're hiring off a culture, not resume these days. Mm. I can teach you how to do most jobs. You really have no choice. Well, that is for sure. <laughs> yeah. that is, that is, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. But, yeah, that is, that is for sure. Yeah. Now but, more than ever, for but sure. But what I'm curious about is when you opened Yardbird, were you the person in there every day? Or did you put a team together? No, I put a team together. I, we actually had a great opening team. And, you know, by that time, you know, as you mentioned, I had grown Lime to such a stage. I understood infrastructure. You know, certainly touching the store daily uh, without a doubt, but I was also very focused on growth. And so we had, um, you know, we had a good opening chef team. We had good operators, good head head pastry. I mean, we really put together a great team, you know, as as, you know, bad and good as as opening teams can be. You know, we we accomplished something together that, you know, got us some recognition from our our peers in the industry, which is, you know, what we all strive for. So, What does it take to put a good team together? What does the team need? What are you willing to give the team, especially the people that are the the keystones to the restaurant? Yeah, I think everybody has to be drinking the Kool-Aid. Everybody has to see the vision because it's above pay. It's above, you know, it's a commitment that you know everybody wants to be the first in and 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 you're kicking them out the door like when you are able to harness that type of shared vision and passion that's when great things happen right but but as a leader you you've at least got to start that you've got to get everybody inspired they, they got to be ready to charge into battle with you and i think that you know that's my job is is you know, here's what we're going to do. It's going to be great, everybody. We're going to we're going to crush it, and you know, by the time I'm done yapping, everybody's like, "Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to," you know. And then by the time you know they're adding all their little touches along the way, like this idea that you had, um, that you've rallied everybody for battle. Now, now it really becomes something. And so, you know, some of our original menu items still are from that. You know, I remember we had a sous chef, Elliot, that was from New Orleans. Our our shrimp and grits recipe, you know, he brought with him. And all these little touches that everybody kind of gave these gems to the restaurant. And that's the unique thing about the restaurant business. Like, you know, I worked in dozens of places. Most chefs touch. And every place you go, you you leave something. You you give it something. It's a part of you. And so that's that's a unique thing about our business is, you know, some of your creativity, some of your 
thoughtfulness, some of your branding, some of your operations, some part of you, if, if you do it right, is left with that brand. Mm. And, you know, I think what we try to do now when we find those really special individuals, that we're trying to create ways that they can really um, – profit long term and, and be a part of the things they help create. So, so what are those yeah. ways? So equity. Uh, so is this yeah. what you were doing then or is this how you evolved? This is how you Well, no, out? no, I did it then and, and we're doing it now. So, um, you know, the original chef and some of the partners actually just made a fortune uh, and, you know, it made, it made a whole bunch of money. I'd get kind of given them sweat equity in the beginning. And, um, you know, everybody kind of did very well. I think, you know, we're, now we're trying to figure out ways where, you know, you can really uh, have an incentive beyond a paycheck that you can help uh, be a part of something. And and I think, you know, again, for me, it, it's it's a long-term vision of where do we want to be in five years or ten years and, and who's a part of that and how do we grow these brands globally. And, you know, you look at big companies that have done that well – and there's there's a bit of a roadmap, right? And, yeah. and so, you know, again, I think just keep paying attention to our industry and others, and they can kind of paint a picture of uh, that, that, that commitment, that buy-in that goes beyond a paycheck. So for the people out there who are so against partnerships and splitting equity, uh, what is your argument to them as to why it's the option? Well, so th- there's there's some nuances to that. I think actual partnership is a bit of a burden to the staff member where, you know, they're getting a K-1, there's a tax burden, they get diluted and, and as, as you're raising money. They're, they're, that's not exactly, I think, the best thing for the employee or the business because it becomes cumbersome. There's about a half a dozen ways to do it. We, there's a management incentive program that you can kind of create a separate LLC where they get to profit at, and as you sell, they get profit a, a yeah, profit sharing. There is um, kind of phantom stock options along the way that kind of give the same rights where, you know, after five years, you can kind of cash in your chip or uh, 10 years or if you sell or there's a, a transaction, you get to profit. in. so there's a bunch of different ways to long term incentivize the team members that are yeah, employee true. stock ownership. Is that what you're talking about? You, there's there's tons of different ways. Yeah. There's tons well, of I mean, different ways. I, I looked into some of those ways. Um, employee stock ownership. There's another one. I can't remember exactly what it's called there's so many acronyms and stuff out there but i realized that some of those 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 uh options while they're great for sharing equity are you have you need like a hundred thousand dollars to like hire a lawyer to do it right you know so for a lot of people who want to share equity it's out of reach because they can't do it right because they don't have the resources to set it up. No, that's a very good point. I, that is not something I could have even afforded to do on my first initial restaurants. That, yeah. that, that is an expensive process to set up the LLC, to set up the agreements, uh, even to maintain the program properly, even from an accounting side. Yeah. So they are more difficult. I think in the beginning, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a bonus program along the way um, or, or some sort of shared percentage. I, I think, think profit, yeah. Yeah, profit, profit sharing. Yeah, that's I, probably I the clo- the easiest reach for most people yeah. is to say, hey, here's an account. All the profit goes there. And once it's there, we sh- we split it up, you know, above this point. Yeah, and I think, you know, everybody's aligned with that. You know, if you're growing sales and you're making more money, then y- y- it all pays for itself. It's yeah. a great thing. And But I think traditionally the model of you're going to get paid, I'm going to do my best to make 15 20% of the bottom line, and I'm going to try to grow sales. We're not all aligned with that, right? Mm-hmm. I, I can threaten right up and hold it over your head that you have to make these numbers but at the end of the day you're not really incentivized to do that so it's hard to do and i think you know we're still you know in this growth stage where as you said larger companies are able to do more and better things we've tried to tackle that through our just the entire 
employee package, uh, our team member package as a, a whole, healthcare, uh, 401k, uh, bonus systems, uh, time off, you know, just kind of like quality of life, but long-term yeah. incentive along. Yeah. I want to get into that. First, I also want to point out too, again, it's all about perspective from the person who's going to do it. Right. So when you started Lime Fresh, would you have been willing to give up equity then as willing as you were with later in life when you had more security? No. And, exactly. and, and, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you. So one is, uh, you know, I was heavily leveraged and you know, the idea that you are bringing on new people that you don't know that well that are going to, um, well, I, that's not true. Actually, I had a great right hand person when we started. Uh, I had offered several times for an invest. He he didn't choose to, even though he had the money. But I I still just kind of gave him a percentage of profits when we sold, just yeah. because he was a key part of that yeah. component. So hand not not even a handshake, just like thank you so much. You yeah. you, you helped me get here. I, I think with it, it's a little bit different in that it. it you know, I, I actually just um, was speaking to another restaurateur friend of mine, chef in, in Denver. Is as many great success stories as you have around um, an equity package. There's a horror story to follow for a restaurateur. It's somebody that took advantage of you, somebody that you've ended up paying off for years to come that has left or is now competing against yeah. you. And I've got a whole set of, of, of issues with that. I, I Everybody who's tried yeah. has successes and failures, but but you can't stop trying and yeah. you can't stop trying to find those good folks. That There's pros do and cons. Do. Pros yeah. and cons to everything. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's the part of the business where – you, you might not have as many chefs and restaurant tours tell you kind of the dark side of that yeah. where, you know, yeah, I had, you know, X, Y, and Z that I incentivized and gave them a great package, but then I ended up paying them a crap load of money yeah, for the company. owns a percentage. Yeah. When, when they still own but that I'm percentage. But I'm still working my ass off. <laughs> when they decide, like, you know what? I don't want to do this. That's right. And they still have that. And community. so, you know, to your point, you got to set it up with kind of all the contingencies in mind. Yeah. And, and then hopefully you throw it in the drawer and you, everybody does. Yeah, well, <laughs> then I think, you know, in the beginning, you're working shoulder to shoulder, and you just want to think the best in people, and that everybody's going to do the right thing. And that's unfortunately just not always people the case in business, too, right? And yeah. we're allowed to change. We're human. We sure. evolve. We sometimes we think we know what we want, and then we start doing it, and we're like, oh, I didn't. This is not the vision I had. Uh, yeah. You know? So, but I mean, that happens with 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 any any business, and I think you know, I've uh, one of the great benefits I've had is I've gotten to meet with other you know young restaurateurs and chefs that are scaling and questions of you know and it's like i just tell everybody i've I've gone through all the drama and all the pitfalls for you so just ask me (laughs) so you know that's a common thing that's come up whether it's early stage investors or a key person that you've incentivized with sweat equity that turns into a a big burden at some point when they're no longer helping. Yeah. So there, there's the good and the bad of that. And, and, and the best stories is you go on and you have a happy marriage, but make no mistake. It is a marriage you have to maintain yeah, for every right? one yeah. of those stories. You hear about three or four of that. Yeah. So I like, mean, but yeah. the, you know, that's business. I yeah. mean, and, and, and I think, you know, if I think it's just hard in the early stages, what I've found with, with a lot of folks that I talk to is it's so hard to, be non-emotional about that it, it certainly was for me at an early stage because you just feel personally slighted and like i'm this is what i do this is my blood sweat and tears i've risked everything and so you know i talked to a, a young chef here in town that the, you know they were just so emotionally caught up and 
and I just said, okay, well, let's just try and remove yourself for a second. Yeah, and it's just, hard to do. Let's that. look when you're, at, when oh, you're in it. It's, it's the worst. This is this is what you see. It is the you, worst. But when you take a it's few, all few steps all, back, all emotion. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, but you know, I think the, the the good news is, you know, it's like just remove it and 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 step back and get somebody else's point of view. And in in his particular case, you know, he ended up, you know, getting a settlement. You know walking away doing it again and it was it was the right thing to do right but it's like when you're in it it's like you know you just you, you get blinded yeah. you, you just see red little sidebar note real quick if this was six years ago would be having to wrap up the conversation no and there you doesn't go. it feel you're, like you're like now you're, extended yeah i mean i just love i'm so happy i made a decision to accept All right, well i'm rambling too much we'll no, have to you're stay not, focused man. you're Sorry. dropping gold and i'm loving every second of it i'm so happy we still have like another 40 or 50 minutes left of this because man we're getting some good stuff all right you're doing yeah, a great good, job good. thank you so much um so what i'm curious about next so um you put a, put a big emphasis on collaboration, and you, you, you pointed out that when you opened Yardboard, you put a team. Yardboard, you put a team together. Um, how are you attracting this team? Like, where are you finding this team? How, like, what, what, do you, what, what's your strategy for convincing them to come work for you in a world that's so abundant with opportunity in the restaurant industry? You go anywhere. Like, how are you finding these people? Uh, stalking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, a lot of times I will, I will. Find stalking. Well, I literally will show up at their their place of oh, business. Like I will, stalk, I will like, stalking, stalking. Yeah. You know? No, I think you know. It's like I, dating. Huh? Exactly. No, I, I, I'm just kidding. Like, if you're dating, do not stalk. Like that guy's this guy sitting at my table out there again. He won't <laughs> yeah. leave me alone. Now, you know, I, I think I have come across people that I've seen opportunity with, whether it's um, a media presence or profile, whether it's culinary ability, um, whether it is front of house. And I, you know, I think if, if I have a skill, it is, is recognizing talent in others. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, they don't recognize the same in themselves. So it, it's can you kind of um, convince them that, that this is a good plan for them and if this is uh, something they're passionate about and how does all the puzzle pieces fit in? And I think I've tried to put that puzzle together. Uh, the best I can. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, as you said, people do the right thing or they turn out to be a disaster. And, you know, it just is what it is. You have wins and losses there. Yeah. So um, on this line of like human behavior and what people need to be happy, uh, like focusing on like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, you're offering, you know, obviously security and equity in the business. Um, but when you're building new concepts, new brands, where are those ideas coming from? Are they all coming from your head or like you're, are you incu- incubating like, like, where does this incubation come from? Like, where did these ideas come from? So it, it always, it, or it traditionally has started with me, and, and that I, again, as I mentioned in the beginning, I either get inspired by something I've seen, I'm passionate about, you know, something, well, you know, Yardbird, I grew up in South Carolina and Georgia, and I knew the food very well. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I guess the greatest example is kind of tell you how Yardbird started. So I'm on a food tour. I'm, I'm specifically going around New York with a bunch of other restaurant people looking at what's happening, what's new chefs are inspiring people. And, uh, you know, it's something stupid, like 20 restaurants in two days and you really want to throw up on yourself. And so at the end of this thing, I'm on the airport, I'm going to the airport at like seven o'clock in the morning. And there's one last place that I'd read about that I wanted to stop by, um, called buttermilk channel. And I always tell this story. So a little Southern restaurant in the middle of Brooklyn, and it was closed, obviously, early in the morning. And it's this cool little corner restaurant, kind of cladded with blue. I can remember what it looked like. And all I could do is read the menu and look through the window. 
But by the time I got back in the car and went to the airport, I had just started sketching ideas and names and, and menus and because I had this space and, I, you know, I, I mentioned I had the burger concept for it. Well, by the time I got out of permitting, I would have been the last guy to the party with the burger concept. I had Shake Check around the corner, five guys, and like I, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like, I, way too much competition. I, I don't want to be last of the party. So, what can I do with the space? And that was really the purpose of the trip. And I managed to convince myself by the time I got off the plane to Miami that uh, Southern American food was going to be a, a huge hit in Miami, and I don't have any natural competition. Well, what I didn't realize, I really didn't have any natural competition in the rest of the U.S., and everybody thought I was out of my freaking mind because I was going to go sell bourbon and fried chicken in the land of Red Bull and vodka and sushi. <laughs> and, and so everybody said, yeah, that's a great idea, John. We're going to put you on COD regardless of how well you did with Lyme. We're not even going to give you terms because we think this is such a bad idea. Wait, so, what's COD? <laughs> cash on delivery oh, for yeah. all orders, <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, that started with me. But then, you know, I, I had a great, uh, amazing creative guy that had worked with me online, this guy, Chris Romero, that, you know, was a great branding guy. And he started kind of, uh, you know, spitballing, you know, amazing ideas that helped kind of create some of the slogans and some of the logos. Um, you know, we had family recipes that we started to kind of layer in there. We started to look at places like Blackberry Farms and other, um, you know, Hugh Atchison and all these great Southern chefs that were kind of coming up and really just start to then become a student of what was going on in Southern food and what did we want to be and what was the interior? What do we want to look like? And, you know, we started to go down the rabbit hole and, you know, whatever idea I had on that plane just became better and better and better and, and far exceeded what I could have ever done on my own. And, you know, as I said, you know, from our sous chef, Elliot, to, you know, the, the chef at the time, to the baker, everybody contributed to menu or beverage. Uh, Josh Holiday had done the original Yardbury Blackberry, Blackberry Bourbon Lemonade, which exists to these days. So, you know, all these great folks that were on in the beginning kind of helped shape what the concept was. And then it was a matter of kind of honing that and dialing it in and figuring out, looking at that menu mix and figuring out profitability. And then that's where kind of the business end of things happen. And you know, again, as I said, the, the concept continues and has continued to evolve. It switched again when we went to Vegas. It was another massive shift when we took Yardbird to Singapore, and nobody knew what the hell Southern food was. And they said, oh, you're from, from the south of, of the U.S., and you're like uh, Brazil. I'm like, ah, too far south. <laughs> yeah, like all so, the Americans. All the Americans. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's, it's always a learning process, but I think, you know, long answer to the question is um, – you know, the idea starts with me and this becomes better by the people we bring on. Now, these days, much more resources. We get to collaborate with Rockwell and, and some of the best branding people and, and, you know, design and food and chefs that all get to kind of come on board and do that. But I think, you know, for me is, is my role is still, you know, Cheek is a great example where what we opened as is not what we became. Right. Yardbird stayed a little bit more true to what it is. But Chica was a big pivot um, in that. We were far more Peruvian in Venezuela, which didn't translate to the market, and they didn't understand it. And how do we make it more approachable? How do we find the flavors that are known within Latin cuisine and you know what will sell? And how do we just talk about the concept? How do we describe it? What spirits are we going to feature? Um, so all of that is a constant evolution and a pivot um, as we create things along the way. And I, I drive that part, and then I kind of collaborate with everybody to kind of get it yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. So we're... 
when I asked the original question of like, wh- like when you're building these, these concepts, like where does the idea come from? Is it from you? Mm-hmm. What I was curious about, uh, candidly speaking, I, I think that a lot of issues with, uh, bigger companies, when they attract these, these people, they, they have, they comprise security, but they, they don't have any sense of autonomy. Like I think to get top talent, the best in the industry, like they, they have to have a sense of their identity mm-hmm. in that restaurant. They have a, like some of their vision has to be a part of it. Some of their creativity has to shine through that. And they want to be seen too. Like at the end of the day, I think that it's, it's really important. People want to, I mean, we all have an ego. We, we want to check our ego. We don't want our ego to, to like swell and, and control our lives. But at the end of the day, we still have an ego. So you're, um, you're not wrong. And, yeah. and, and I think it's something we've struggled with. So when you're trying to scale something, and attract chefs, not kitchen managers. That's a tough one yeah. because you have kind of left brain, right brain chef. You have yeah. a you have a guy that is a great leader, organizer, kitchen manager, can drive costs. Then you have a great creative chef that really can put out great dishes. And the two of those mindsets combine one great leader in the kitchen. Usually, you have to find a really good you know CDC, good sous chef to kind of back them up. But I think trying to find enough creativity to allow them to present dishes and and to evolve the concept so we hired a really talented chef in dallas when we opened up and we knew that you know this guy's not going to come on and just execute the menu that we had before but we were aligned because we didn't want to do the menu we had before we 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 know we have 10 items that we have to have for yardbird or we're going to have a riot and then the rest of them you know we want you to present ideas now where you have to hold the line as a company owner, a restaurateur, chef, is you have to filter those ideas because there's a whole lot of people, a lot of ideas, and not so many of them are great, right? And not so many of them pay attention to the industry, your customer, or what will sell, mm. right? It's like, I have a great dish. Well, how, do, how much are we going to sell it for? And will anybody buy it? Yeah. You know, and it's like, this, this was, you know, I, I've, I've gone through tastings where people present things that they absolutely are passionate about that they feel are great that I just know in my gut will not sell mm. and, and know that won't fit our concept. And so that's where you have to hold the line. And, and there's a way to do that, um, that inspires and allows them to be creative individuals without stifling that, uh, but still keeps you moving in the right direction. Brand wise, it just takes a little bit more time and education along the way. So if you have, if you're approaching this as a creative with kind of a lack of ego and like, you know, you're going to present 10 dishes, maybe one of them get through. Um, I, I think, you know, there's pride in still that one dish being there, but you got to tell somebody really fundamentally why the other ones won't make it. And got you got to be kind of tough, love, brutally honest about that. Yeah. Candor is huge. And yeah. Candor and is huge. What's that book out there? Radical candor that everyone picked up. And, and uh, I mean, do you, what are your thoughts on candor? Well, I, I think you listen, I'm, I'm probably too unfiltered at times. I've, I've gotten much <laughs> better to be honest with you but you know i i was probably uh, you know early on uh, as a leader i was probably way too unfiltered not rude just like no that's not gonna work right (laughs) it's just it just it just came out uh i I think you know there's more tactful ways to inspire and lead people that want to be a part of things that don't feel shot down i know our teams put a lot of work into what they present cocktail um and and food and, and and creative and so you know, even if I'm going through a tasting and, and it's all not going to make it and it's all not good, I, I'm still going, I appreciate you taking the time. I, I, I love that you're being creative. I love that you're thinking about this concept in this menu when you're not here. Yeah. Right. And, and it's like 
there's a way to kind of steer creativity without like slamming the door in someone's face. Yeah. So for you, what comes first, like the idea for a concept or a person that you think would be ideal to work with? And how can we build a concept around this um, person? Almost always the concept in the cuisine. Okay. And, um, you know, I think Wakuda is a great example of that. I, I you know, after a an amazing trip to Japan with a bunch of chef friends was inspired to go do this Japanese concept and, and try to do it differently than what I'd seen reflected. I went down the rabbit hole of starting to create that concept. And then when Tetsuya came on board, which was really otherworldly, I mean, here's one of the top chefs in the world, two-star Michelin guy. I mean, on every list there is a list for, it, it was just elevated the concept above and beyond, right? Whatever I had in mind for food was then kind of surrendered to a true expertise that we had never had that level within the company where it was like, I got this, right? And at that point, I was probably uh, more of a, a business direction and than I was a creative on the food. Um, I, I had a, a large hand in organizing and directing this menu or Chica's menu more so. But with Tetsuya, you know, you have such a level of expertise there that – it's just trying to filter, you know, cost and can can we serve this? I mean, you know, under a thousand dollars a head yeah. type thing. So every situation is different, but I think mostly it starts with concept and cuisine, and then the other parts layer in. Got it. Got it. So where is Fifty Eggs today? As far as what's on your mind? Where are you going? How has your business evolved most recently? Uh, like, what does your continued evolution look like? So, I mean, growth. I mean, we've really um, added some unbelievable team members, some new corporate positions we haven't had in the past, some senior corporate chefs, some things to help us scale. Uh, our focus right now is is scaling the UK and the Middle East. Um, bucket list for me, just something I've always wanted to do. Uh, just got back from London and think we found a site for Yardbird over there and, and looking at sites for Wakuda and Chica. So what are the, the benefits outside of this country? Why is it so enticing for you to go overseas? Um, Certainly a personal goal because uh, it's really freaking cool yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I got to create something. International. In, in, well, yeah. I mean, you know, listen, going to Singapore, particularly living in Asia for a period of time, was otherworldly. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I was flying in the back of the bus with the chickens running around when I first got over it's there. So, world, you know, the first time going over there for to see my business open was was unbelievable. And I think, you know, traveling to Europe and the Middle East and, and getting to see the concepts we created here um, flourish over there, getting ready to have a global audience is exciting but it also it it changes the dynamic to you know concepts that are originated in dubai or in london are are looking to come here and every the world's gotten very small right and and london and new york and miami i mean we're we're sharing a customer believe it or not we are um sharing a global audience and when you talk about scale and the ability to um really see you know, a, a, a true global map for these things. Those are cities you, you, you want to be present in, right? Mm-hmm. Because they launch the rest of the Middle East and the rest of Europe. So, you know, by doing those major cities, it opens up a whole new um, just level of scaling those concepts. Yeah. And that's exciting to me. So, uh, you know, I think I'm always asked kind of, you know, it's, it's really not about anything else, but how far can we take it? Yeah. And, and, and that is different than it was with Lime. I needed to get out of Lyme. I needed to to monetize what I had created um, to be able to do anything else. Now it's about let let's see what we can do here. Like yeah. you know, let let's see how far we can take it. And will there be an exit for these concepts? Hundred percent. But I, I think you know, in the meantime, we're having a lot of fun. We're we're building a 
a bigger and a better organization than we probably well i i can always dream that big but i mean it's good to see it come to life and to be able to attract some of the talent we are you know as you mentioned how do you attract talent i think you know opportunity is a huge one right to to know that we're scaling and that you get to be a part of that and i can go from being an executive chef to being a corporate chef or to overseeing a brand i mean those are exciting things right that's what people want to do for sure so what about in terms of uh, in terms back to evolution in terms of operational evolution uh what like, I mean, I'm sure you're constantly improving. You're constantly getting better, 1% better every day. Kaizen, this mindset. Since I last spoke to you in 2016, I think you, you were mentioning you use tools like Compete uh, for your, like to, to manage inventory and to keep a thumb on the, the cost of goods and things like this. Um, are you still using Compete? Are you using other tools? Are there other ways you run your business that are more efficient and streamlined? So technology, it seems, has been you know we've been the last one to benefit from that yeah. traditionally and it, it's changing quite rapidly so compete kind of transitioned into restaurant 365 yeah, which restaurant we 365, use now uh, acquired um, compete difficult and, and, and a little bit slow for a multi-concept company with as many SKUs for a chef-driven concept. It's a little bit more formatted for fast casual where you have the same ordering sheet. We have different ordering sheets for every concept. That said, so with that in mind, you know, I, I talked to uh, a, a great corporate chef who used to be with True Foods yesterday, and we were talking about technology in and of itself. You know, here's a concept that it, you know Sam Fox created with True Foods that scaled and uh, Sam Fox is on my hit list. Yeah, by it, the way. great, great, great <laughs> restaurant tour. But you know, you, very similarly, they had to go create their own spreadsheets and software and analytics by getting some Bain analyst in there and being able to go through things. And in that, in that bizarre that you have a scaling funded business that's at 20, 30, 40 locations and there isn't a product that really gives you the window and the analytics into what's selling to what cost and how to pivot menus and, and to do that on scale. And so it's still, those tools don't exist as much. What we find is we're layering several platforms on top of each other. And, um, we're getting better at it and and we're getting more and more transparency but i think that financial discipline is really our financial discipline focus is really our mantra for this year that that's something we talk about a lot in in our executive meetings and i think really especially um, going to the future with if what they say about another recession's about well, to happen i i i agree but i think you know listen the the danger of a creative company is that you know you Financials and, and the discipline around financials is, is kind of the afterthought a lot of times. It's how do we, how are we the coolest? How do we the best? How do we the most innovative? But the reality is, is if we're not super disciplined on the financials, the one lesson we all learn is that you will not make it through the recession. You will not make it through another COVID. You will not make it through anything. So we had learned a lot financially. And just to give you a quick snippet of how crazy this business is, we're going in. We're under construction on three stores for Yardbird going into COVID. Uh, the bank had given us a, a line of credit to uh, expand, and we had some cash. And together, we had enough money to do those three stores. Bank pulled its line of credit as soon as COVID came out, froze it. We already signed the leases. We're under construction. Man. And that was a oh, shit moment. Are we going to go bankrupt? What are we going to do? Um, what's going to happen to Yardbird? And so, you know, there's always these pivots. And I think, you know, we've learned a lot by having a private equity partner. We've learned a lot by going through a transaction with a public company. We've learned a lot by individual investors and franchising. And I think you you have to come back to, even if it's not 
a skill set, even if you're more creative and less financially driven, you got to make it part of your business. If you if you want to be a multi concept, multi store restaurateur, you have to put the effort in there. And it's not just about going and hiring a CPA and trusting that you're going to get a P and L at the end of the month. It's really taking a deep dive and figuring out how to get consistent financials out of these restaurants on a regular basis. Because when the shit hits the fan, you know. So what's your strategy for doing that? Uh, a whole lot of work on analytics. So we've expanded our team in the, in the accounting department, and it really is a uh, a, a cross effort between operations and and that. So Stephen Starr, I think, has one or two people that just go into the restaurants and is kind of a liaison between accounting and operations. And we've started to kind of bring in those hybrid people. Greg Thomas, I mentioned earlier, is an incredible whiz when it comes to finances, but it's he's an operator by trade that just has an acumen for financials. Yeah. Right. And you have chefs that are the same way where, you know, they just have this acumen for financials and understanding cost and, you know, have created their own spreadsheets. And those are the kind of people that need to act as a liaison, a liaison between yeah. that controller and that general manager in the store because it's the one thing I learned as an operator is is to tell your GM that, you know, hey, your food cost is two points high. Well, that doesn't mean anything to me, right? It's like, I want to know where it's high. I don't have time to go spend three hours in the office. I need to run the restaurant. Tell so me what I, to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you tell me what to go attack. Yeah. What's bleeding? What's leaking? Where, yeah. where do I fix the problem? And I think the more information and tools we can give our operators and allow them to run the restaurants, that's when you have an operation that really thrives financially. But when you just go, you know, and I remember this from early on in my 20s when I was working for other companies. I mean, you're in the freaking office doing paperwork for yeah. hours. And that doesn't help you run the restaurant, no. right? And so I, I think we're tr- really trying to remove as much as that burden from them, but at the same time teach them. I think there's companies a couple years ago um, when they ended really invest in their training programs, right? They would put you through P&L school at, at some of these big restaurant groups, right? Whether it was Brinker or Hard Rock, they'd put you through weeks yeah. of, of how to do a P&L, how to really understand those financials. That's all but disappeared. Now it's, hey, you've got a pulse. Can you start tomorrow? you got a social security number. All right, we're in. And, you know, I think we're really trying to create a world-class training program. So whether you're here with us a month or 10 years, you're walking away with more tools than you came here with. You're going to understand how to do yeah. a P&L. You're going to understand all that stuff. So what are these tools that are exciting you? What are the tools you're giving your guests to have to, like, to, to, to be able to, to do everything you're telling us? So uh, it's a couple things. So we've used Beverager. We've used Chef Tech. We've used Restaurant 365. You're using your POS system. I think Beverager is now called is it Foodable or Foodager. Or Probably they might have rebranded. Yeah. I just want. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll uh, craftable. I think is what they're calling now. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of these have to layer on top of each other. But the reality is, is in all of these platforms we've paid, there's got to be somebody to maintain them because yeah. it's it's bad information in, it's bad information yeah. out. And I think what happens is, you know, what what's happened for us is we've scaled, and we touched on this a little bit with Lime as we started to scale. Is you start to have some purchasing power. Yeah. But one of the things that can go wrong is you get really taken advantage of by you know the u.s foods and the cisco's of the world and and those things if if you allow it to happen so having insight into how you purchase what you're purchasing at how you receive that's one part of the equation then it's how do you manage the food when it comes in the back door you've purchased this much you've sold this much this is what you have left over well you're missing you know this much and where did where did it go If, if we comped it no problem just tell me who we're comping it and how we're growing the business or is it at somebody's backyard right now so i mean those are all kind of the things that we're trying to help our operators fully understand and it is again this hybrid between technology 
uh, our staff, our operators, your accounting department. It's kind of all the above. So is this your lane? Are you out there looking at the newest, latest tools and services that you can give your team to, to, to shave those, like, half of a percentage points off where you can or do you have somebody who's plugged into that no i i have you know a great cfo and and a great operator great controllers that kind of help us with that i i know the results i'm trying to drive and i think the more analytics we can get to do that i i'm i tend to zoom out on some of that stuff until i have to zoom in yeah uh, you know and yeah. and i think you know i i know where we're at and where we need to be and then it's a matter of you know, I I know P and L so well that I can look at something and I know something's wrong, but it still doesn't tell me the story. And until I understand in writing visually of what's off, then I keep plugging away yeah. to get to that. What's the future of the industry? Oh boy, that's a this is a loaded question. <laughs> if, if if I knew that one, I think I could just go get that funding I always wanted. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, if you had to take a stab, yeah. What you're you're a risk taker, right? Uh, yeah. Where are you putting your eggs? Oh, how appropriate. Yeah, that's very appropriate. Where are those 50 yeah. eggs going, Did that, man? Uh, <laughs> no, you know, listen, I, I am definitely a high-stakes gambler. I think I'm, I'm definitely trying to be more measured in what I do these days. I think, you know, the, the world of fast casual will not go away. The world of food will not go away. I think the, the one thing that we look at is the top end and the bottom end tend to suffer the most in a recession, right? The ultra-fine the extremes, all, The extremes. Yeah. But we kind of exist somewhere in the middle. We're kind of approachable fine dining on some of our, you know, our highest check average, which would be Japanese, all the way down to spring chicken. And I, I think we're we're somewhere in the middle with those. I, I think the future of the industry is is what I've seen, and you know, I was in the Middle East three weeks ago in London last week. Is globally what we're seeing is just much more experience driven entertainment based dining on the full service side um, everywhere I think people want to have a an, an immersive experience yes it's it's you know I think years back it was I want to have Instagramable food in my face and really pretty food uh, then it was design now it's music and playlists is there a DJ in the room is there a performance like everybody wants to have a full immersive dining experience now that is not to say that, that your local chef driven restaurant with no design anything else all about the food will not be there that is always going to have a place but that is a different model of 50 to 60 seats than it is of a 200 to 350 seat restaurant that's pushing 15 million dollars right it's two different businesses so I think from our business and what we do and how we drive our company forward and create opportunities for our staff is we really have to look at kind of what uh, the wor- world as a global audience is really looking for in our concepts uh, and, and in concepts in general that are going to generate the type of sales volume that are going to allow us to grow our business. And truly, so, you know, will I go do a 50, 60 seat restaurant with a chef because I'm so inspired? Probably just because I, I do chase that shiny penny and I am so inspired by cuisine and chefs. Yeah, at, at times. yeah I, I can't help point, it. Otherwise. Can't help it. Yeah. But, but you know, the core business model we drive is, is really find value and grow the, the ultimate value of the company and provide opportunity. So, yeah, yeah. I've really been loving this conversation. Answers. No, man, it was great. It was great. <laughs> I'm loving the conversation. I do like to end the free flowing portion of the conversation with this idea that uh, our mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. I do believe our, that as an industry, we are guilty of being very reactive, very reactive to the market out of fear. It's fear-based reaction. Like I'm afraid of like if I don't do this, I'll like like I'll miss something, right? right. And like this is what this is what the consumer wants. We better give them what they want. I think we could be better about almost saying, "Hey, consumer, enough is enough. It's time for you to react to what we." think is best you know for our for the sake of our people for the sake of our own livelihood right like we need your support 
consumer, like help what, us. What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? I mean, so, what's an example of that? I think the example is uh, driving. Like, it's, it's all about one big example is not charging what we should charge to to take care of our people. You know what I'm saying? Like being afraid to charge the actual value of the service we provide. No. A fear of charging the value is one big thing. I think if we want to make a lot of the changes that we need to make in this industry to, to give our people the support and security they need, where is that going to come from? Right. right. And I think it needs to come from the consumer. That's one example. So along this idea of how can we go into the future more intentional? How can we improve the industry? How can we transform the industry intentionally? Be more proactive, not reactive. Along that vein, what's going through your mind? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. It really is because I think we are, we're constantly absorbing the cost of taking care of our teams and our industry. And it's not fear-based. It's reality of what the customer will pay. Yeah. And because not all restaurants are so focused on bottom line and profitability and you know what our overhead is versus a local chef's overhead and what they're willing to make, whether they're happy with 5% or we need to drive 20 you're you're not exactly playing the same game, so it becomes very difficult because um, to do that, we all would have to be consistent in passing that through, passing that true cost through with the same idea of profitability. I don't think we'll ever be 100% consistent, but I do believe now with resources like Restaurant Unstoppable and other podcasts, we're sharing information like never before. Right. We, we're, we're, we are becoming to standardize what we should expect. You know, like whoever said 5% was okay. I don't think people knew that that was not okay you know right so now we're saying wait 20 percent is achievable here's how you do it let's have some collective standards you know to, to make our industry better so we can have personal security well listen i agree with you i think uh, truly since covid uh, of the you know restaurant coalition and 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 all these folks that kind of came together we have probably more sharing, more communication than we've ever had, which is a great thing because yeah. our inter- industry is splintered and it always has been. We're combining. Right? And I think that, that splintered, that, that fragmentation of the industry has put us in silos where we haven't been reunited before. Right. We, we always were competing with the person down the street, not sharing information. I think now going forward, if we can share information collectively and say, let's empower each other, let's, let's, let's set some standards, yeah. let's, let the, let, let's let the consumer react to us. No, I mean, for sure. I Listen, I think that we're, I'm an open book, as you hear. I mean, I, I think, I think you know, I've always taken the time to kind of sit down and open up our books to other restaurateurs and other chefs. I think, you know, I wish someone had been able to do that with me to more of an extent. I didn't have access and didn't have people in the business I knew in the beginning. I, I developed those networks and knocked on people's doors. And fortunately, you know, as, as I mentioned, I had a couple of people that, that opened them for me. Um, but I think having the resources, I mean, they're – there's so many out there now. There are people willing to talk. I think that would be a big takeaway is, you know, ask the question, right? Yeah. Just get out there and ask the question, whether it's to a, a larger company, uh, you know, a, a chef that you admire, like, hey, you know, how, how do you guys deal with this? Yeah. And you'd be surprised at the answers you get. It's like, well, shit, we're dealing with the two. I mean, yeah. we're having a hard time. Yeah. And, and truly at any scale, I think whether you're dealing with a, a big public company or down to a local chef, we, we all deal with the same challenges, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the maybe it's a false vision on the industry that, you know, what geez, you, 50 eggs you guys have gotten so big and it's like well I, I promise you I'm dealing with the same crap yeah. as a guy who's got one store down the road we're yeah. dealing with same staffing challenges mm-hmm. how to take care of our people how to grow how to be profitable with rising commodities you know our labor rates are higher than they've ever been how do you, how do you charge and pass that through to the customer all those challenges we have and it's even amplified so you know I think 
this idea that you know we can't learn from each other, we can't collaborate is, is false, yeah. as you said. And so. we will go further together. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest lessons. Like the more minds that are combined together to tackle one problem, the the faster you'll solve those. The more creative you'll solve those. Absolutely, issues. John. Is there anything we haven't discussed up to this point? Something you were hoping we would get out? No, geez, I rambled for hours here. No, it was not <laughs> rambling, man. It was great, solid <laughs> advice, and this has been a true privilege to reconnect with you. No, You're the reason thanks, why we buddy. came to Miami. We're here because of you, and you're awesome. worth the trip, man. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be back to bust out a true speed round. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We are back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Discipline. Discipline. How do you stay disciplined? Consistency. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about habit? Is habit a big part of your life? Is your yeah. day routine the same? It, well, I, I think I just I force myself to do the things I don't want to do. Yeah. Right? I get mean, over with first. Yeah, get, get up and work out. You know, yeah. you try, try to do the things you don't want to do first and, and knock it out every day. Yeah. Uh, what is your biggest challenge? Focus. What is your biggest weakness? Um, patience. What is one question you ask? Actually, I already asked you this question before. I'm, I'm curious that the question will be the answer will be the same. What is uh, one question you ask or thing you, you look for when you're growing your team, when you're finding that, that person to invest in? Passion. Mm. How do you know they're passionate? Kind of I don't know. It's just the, the, the gut yeah. feeling, I guess. I don't know. Uh, what's your biggest challenge today? Or enthusiasm, maybe. How about that? Oh, enthusiasm enthusiasm yeah. and passion go hand in hand. Enthusiasm is huge. Yeah. Um, the, the room will only rise the the person in the room who has the most energy, whether that energy is positive or negative. Yeah. So you got to have those people who are passionate, enthusiastic. High energy. Because they're going to raise everybody around That's right. them. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, what was the last question? Sorry. Uh, no, good. Uh, what is your, um, what's your biggest challenge today? Okay. Um, I, I'd say 
staffing is probably one of our biggest challenges um, globally. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many people left our industry. We're having to um, really recruit people outside the industry and train them from scratch. And I think building back our uh, industry as a whole and attracting new people to it is is some of our biggest challenges in hospitality. I think we're going to have to transform the industry in order sure. to do that, which is kind of brings us back to where we left off before the break is right. like, we got to change some shit if we expect people to stick around. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, for, for sure the industry is, is it's hard, right? It, 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 it chews you up. It spits you out. I think, you know, the hours are long. Um, it, it, in the beginning it was a calling. I think all of a sudden there became so many other options to yeah. make the same or better money with better lifestyle. Economy, and, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. There's so much, the world is evolving. You can work from home, doing right. so many different things. How do you compete with that? Right. It's tough. Uh, it is tough. Uh, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a core value, a way to be integrity, mm. share one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. So something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants to go above and beyond what's expected from the guests, but not common throughout the industry. Well, gosh, I, I think hospitality is definitely should be common thread throughout the industry. I, I think, you know, we are always looking to personalize our service. I, I, I'd say, you know, we have employees that have been here um, from the beginning in, in this restaurant. Some of our long, I mean, somewhere from seven to my longest employee in here has been with me 16 years. Uh, he came with uh, from Lyme. And I think every one of those folks just kind of uh, enjoys, takes true joy from serving others. And I think for me, when I create a restaurant, I have uh, others' happiness, and I, I want them to walk away with an experience. Uh, so I think really uh, finding that 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 joy and hospitality, that joy in customer service, it's just something you can't teach. I mean, uh, I, you either have it or you don't. You you get pleasure from seeing other people have fun and enjoy their food and enjoy their dining experience. And I just think that we. We almost try to hire for that. Like, you know, do you enjoy do you have a dinner party at your house? Do you enjoy, like, taking care of other people? Yeah. And some people don't, right? Yep. Yep. What is one book that's a must-read that makes a better person or restaurant owner? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a tough one. Um, I, I've, I've looked at a lot of books outside the industry. I, You know, listen, Danny's is, is, is the staple. I mean, that's it's exactly all, what you said the first You know, language. it is. It's just it, – it, it, it really was a it great is, Bible for – hospitality in general um there hasn't been as many great hospitality focused books i think there's a lot of great business books and i think one of the things i, I got involved in early on was a a bunch of local business groups where i'm kind of in with other business owners nobody from the hospitality business but i kind of listen and learn to what they are, are reading and what they're doing leadership books and yeah. you know financial books and kind of you know I, i've learned something from other industries so i think you know that that uh, need that want to keep learning um that, i, that I rarely look to our industry to learn things honestly it, it, it's really true yeah. I, I, I sadly it is true we're yeah. always behind yeah we are I, very behind and I, I like to look to authors you mentioned malcolm gladwell um the first time on the show i like to look at the the leading edge of all industries yeah. how does that relate to our industry no for sure and i think for the most part what what's breaking there's technological stuff that's happening that's really exciting, but there's also so many advancements about human behavior and how we are, why we are, and we're just cracking that code of how we tick. And I think this industry in all business really is about relationships and understanding people. Um, that's some I love that stuff personally. That there's so many cool things out there that we're learning right now. Well, I, I agree, and I think listen, part of being a business leader is is you're evolving, you're educating yourself, and you're you're trying to get better, yeah. right? And 
the hard part about that as a leader, whether you're a general manager or a CEO of a company, is you got to ask for feedback yeah. and you got to be willing to really hear it, which yeah. is tough to hear it sometimes. Tough, yeah. But, you know, there's a great book, What, what Got You Here Won't Get You There. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- those are true statements of growth where, you know, we talked about it earlier, you know, kind of the grind to get here has nothing to do with what's going to push you forward as a company, right? Yeah. Those are things that can kind of trap you and keep you stagnant. Yeah. So I think really just kind of uh, taking an unfiltered, uh, look at yourself and being able to self-reflect. That's yeah. a big one. Did you ever get around to the one thing? Uh, I have, yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. One, the one thing's great. The, the one thing is great, but self-reflection is huge. I yeah. think, you know, that is, the, that is the hardest thing for every leader to do. I think, you know, we've kind of joked around and said, you know, we've done reviews over the last 20 years. And when you sit down with a, a leader and you say, you know, how do you think you're doing? You know, scale of one to ten. It's like I'm a ten all day long. Yeah. It's like no all right, we, improvement, huh? yeah. So you know, you know, you, you you're Shoot up against eight. the wall on that. You know, <laughs> so I, I think you know, you I definitely have room to improve. I de- there are things I can do better, and I think I'm I you know, you, but you got to have a safe place to do that. Yeah. What is one piece of technology you've recently adopted within your restaurants that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? Oh, gosh, uh, evolving. Not there. There isn't a single piece of technology. I think, as I mentioned before, there's there's a whole lot of layered stuff. I think at the end of the day, having um, you know a dedicated uh, finance department that really understands the restaurant uh, business because it is so unique um, has been incredibly helpful. Um, and I think that's been uh, really having the right people to dive in and do analytics has been a game changer for us to understand the financial profitability. Um, I think from a front of the house standpoint with technology, I think the integration of, of systems like Toast and Talk and all these great point of sale systems allow us just that much more insight into our customers, yeah. which is invaluable. Yeah. Well, and, on, on the back of house, what is the the one platform that's getting you really great data right now? That I, you're really? I mean, it, it's, it's pretty. I think mean, Restaurant 365 is giving us great data, uh, but it takes a lot of it, it takes great recipes in. It takes constant updating and it also takes sticking to the order guides yeah. and reconciliation. So there's really not a piece of technology that removes human error at this point. Yes. Um, and I'm going to make a I'm going to make a point to what you're saying right now. People there's no piece of technology that's going to be set it and forget it. And I no. think people think that, like, oh, like I'll spend so much money on a, a restaurant 365 or a restaurant systems pro and awesome. I'll never have to deal with this stuff again. It will be automated. Yeah. They're just, it's just framework. It's just tools to help you do the work more consistently, more accurately. Uh, boy, is that but you the still got to yeah. do the freaking work, man. This is the restaurant industry. Well, I mean, the greatest example <laughs> yeah. is when we first got compete and it was like, you know, we, we get through this whole painful setup and then it was like, you know, 30 days later it was obsolete because we weren't maintaining it's it. It's essentially yeah. a checklist for you to do all that stuff and uh, yeah. you make sure that you go through the process and it's work is work. Work is work. <laughs> yeah, the it, work's it, not it, going And in this business, it never stops. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Uh, what is, okay, this is actually the last question. You're okay. ready for it? Yeah. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of for, for the good of humanity in your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Uh, just in general or? or? General. Yeah. Okay. Jeez, uh, I, I, I kind of default back to just, basic core values you know one high integrity do the right thing core values high integrity do the right is that all one thing or is no no it was kind of one thing okay. <laughs> one, one thing <laughs> i would just say take care of the ones you love and um Two. you know just uh, do, do do your best no matter what 
three. John, this has been a really great conversation, man. Thank you so much. Thank for, you, buddy. Happy for, to have you back oh, to uh, Miami. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. It was a great to um, reconnect with you in person this time. To be now, now we get to feed you, right? Yeah, and I can't wait for that. We're going right. to grab some B-roll. It's going to be awesome. Some of the things we can't do, we couldn't do digitally. We can do uh, in person now, so I'm really excited to All do right. that. We, 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 I, well, hopefully, we won't wait five years to see you next. Yeah? I know. I mean, uh, hey, yeah. you're always welcome back. I would love to continue thanks, this buddy. conversation and see how you evolve in the next five years. But before we Me do, too. <laughs> before we say goodbye, I want to know, um, who do you respect and, and admire in the industry right now? I really want Restaurant Unstoppable to be steered by my guests, by the industry, not by publicists, not by people reaching out to me to be guests on the show, but I want the industry to decide who we make an example of. So who do you respect and admire? You know, I, I sat down with a group out of Dubai recently and, and just was really marveled. You're sending by me to Dubai right now? Yeah, I'm sending oh, you to Dubai. There, there's a group called Admin out of there that was uh, really impressive. They were um, just a the, the scale they're operating on around the world right now. I, I think their infrastructure in Dubai was about 2,500 people and then another 1,000 in Europe. Uh, they were operating something like 17 different concepts. And, you know, for me, just to see it functioning, and by the way, they're all all making money, all doing incredibly well, jobs and chefs. and I, I have mean, a crash pad in Dubai. Somebody has really, offered, so really uh, an amazing business. Yeah. Right. So they're, they're a fascinating group. But I think, you know, looking at some of the larger multi-concept groups, you know, Bulldozer, Admin, you know, Fox Restaurants, all these groups out there that are kind of doing uh, and innovating new things, um, it, you know, it, it's inspiring to me just to kind of look at some of these these leaders and concept creators. And again, I, I'm constantly inspired by uh, by food. I yep. mean, I just am. So, so the name of the Dubai restaurant is Admin, like administrative. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who's the person behind that that I should talk to? Uh, there's a couple of partners, but a guy named Zeev over there is uh, f- fantastic. And um, but yeah, you know, listen, I would, I, I'm dying to go see uh, Sam Fox's new stuff in Nashville and mm-hmm. a couple of new things he's got there. Um, you know, I think there's so many great chefs and restaurant uh, folks around the the, the 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 world that I've gotten to meet. Um, you know, as a group uh, that is expanding in, in New York around the U.S., uh, a really cool uh, you know kind of UK steakhouse called uh, Hawksmoor. Uh, you know, those guys are fantastic. Uh, restaurant tours kind of again work shoulder to shoulder. Have just this amazing uh, kind of. British style steakhouse is just very cool. So I, I go on forever. There's Never, a bunch of people that inspire me. Yeah, and this makes my job so much easier. I don't. Some, it's so overwhelming for me to decide who deserves to be made an example of when you don't know these people. You know. Yeah. Right? And um, uh, you mentioned bulldozer. Never heard of that. Where's that base? Uh, they're they're Russian group and they operate some in Miami, but uh, they're global based out of Dubai. Um, and you know the, the main one of the main partners I met a couple years ago, and again they're operating. Uh, mainly their own concepts, but they operate Cipriani and a bunch of other brands globally. And um, just it really just, again, operating on a massive, massive scale. They're opening, I think, Gaia here in Miami. Is there a specific person that you think I should talk to there? Oh, yeah. There's I, Anyways, I'll get you all that okay, stuff. Got yeah. it, got it. Um, all right. And uh, if we've been really enjoyed today's conversation, if we're inspired by you and maybe want to come join your team, one of your restaurants to be you know, mentored by your group, what's the best way to connect? Gotcha. I mean, I, you know, 50 eggs through our website kind of gets to us. Uh, call our corporate office. I mean, we, we're, we're pretty good about all of that stuff, kind of picking up the phone. And if not, just pop into one of our restaurants and yeah. track me down. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Everybody knows where to get me. John Conkle, my friend. Yes, thank sir. you so much. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the it. The pleasure is ours. And there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. All right. Cheers. Sounds good, buddy. Thank you. 
There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, John Kunkel, for coming back on the show, going deeper, picking up where we left off. And I would love to do more content like this with our past guests as we eclipse nearly a thousand episodes. Uh, one of the biggest lessons is it's not about how many people you know, it's not about the quantity of relationships you have, but it's about the quality of relationships you have and surrounding yourself with key people who uh, add a ton of value to your life. And uh, John was one of the best episodes out there, so super excited that you guys got to listen to him again. Episode 250 was the original, this is episode 700, sorry, 971. So head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash those. Sh- at those numbers and you should have access to the, the show notes over there and everything waiting for you and uh, uh, just so many cool things happening here at Restaurant Stoppable. so actually all the, of the backlog of Restaurant Stoppable is now available on Spotify on iTunes on Google Play wherever you're listening whatever major podcast player you're listening to you should be able to get all of our episodes available to you now so if two episodes a week wasn't enough for you I think uh, we have some backlog, a mountain of content back there just waiting for you to devour. Uh, and uh, thank you if you are listening to that backlog. It just adds more value to what we're doing here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, and if these two-hour-long conversations are too much for you, a lot of people say, like, it's a lot. But you know what? I like it. And I think I get more compliments from people saying that they like they like that there's something out there with, with substance, not just a quick 30-minute like list of something to do but just true real stories unfiltered unedited out there reality of what it is to be out there in the industry right now and uh i'm gonna keep doing it who knows maybe they might even get longer in the next five or ten years but right now i'm comfortable too and uh if you do not like those long format episodes head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable we have short highlighted versions 20 minutes long over there uh, Sam is doing a great job. Sam at sabandsam.com uh, with the videography and, and creating that content over there at YouTube. So if you haven't checked it out, please head over there and subscribe. We're at nearly a thousand subscribers. Help us get there by the end of the month. And thank you in advance. And uh, st- just awesome stuff out there. Can't do it without my team. So grateful for them. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out. <laughs>